Uh, As you may recall, when I was last here, we left off in the middle of Peter's sermon, which he gave on the day of Pentecost. And on that day, uh, I'll invite you to turn to Acts 2, uh, as, as I'm setting it up here. On the day of Pentecost, you'll remember that the Spirit was poured out on Jesus' disciples, who began speaking in tongues in foreign languages, and the crowds there were astonished, and understandably, the question arose, what does this mean? And it's that question that prompts Peter's sermon. And he begins, we saw last time, he begins in this first third of his sermon by quoting the Old Testament prophet Joel, who prophesied that the Spirit would be poured out in the last days and all of God's people would prophesy. And this is where the quotation leaves off in verse 21. Joel says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And this is where we pick up this morning, starting in verse 22. And what we'll see is that Peter's burden in the remainder of this sermon is to convince the Jews that the name of the Lord, the name they must call upon in order to be saved, is the name of Jesus. So beginning in verse 22, hear now God's holy word. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified." Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? 
And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. As we look now at the second part of Peter's sermon, what we find is that everything Peter says is driving toward the conclusion of verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter's sermon is ultimately not so much about the Spirit as it is about the identity of this man known as Jesus of Nazareth. He is both Lord and Christ. And Peter's hope, his aim, is that the Jews might call on him in order to be saved. And so this morning, following our passage, we're going to ask two simple but very big questions. Firstly, who is Jesus? And then secondly, how should we respond to Him? Who is Jesus and how should we respond to Him? So firstly, who is Jesus? And this will take us all the way through verse 36. Now Peter begins in verse 22 by naming Jesus of Nazareth and identifying Him. He says, as a man attested to you by God. And what this means is simply that God had made it plain that Jesus was specially sent by Him. And He did so, Peter says, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know. At this point, Jesus had gone viral because of the miracles that He had performed. And here Peter confidently assumes that no one is going to challenge him on this point. No one is going to deny this claim that God worked mighty things through this man. And I think one of the points that's worth making here, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but the Gospels and the book of Acts, these compositions, they were written early enough that if their accounts were simply made up, people would have easily discovered it. Luke likely wrote Acts in the early 60s. 60s. Some say maybe earlier. And the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they were also written in the 50s and 60s. Only 20 to 30 years removed from the ministry of Jesus. And so if you lived in the first century and you read these accounts, and if you wanted to know whether Jesus really fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish near the Sea of Galilee, you could go there to the region of Galilee and ask, did it really happen? The names and places of Jesus' healings are often noted in the Gospels. So you could go to these places and ask around, did Jesus really raise Lazarus from the dead? Did the paralytic really get up and walk? Did the blind man see? 
The Gospels are chock full of the public miracles of Jesus. And if all of it were simply a hoax, people would have easily discovered it and dismissed the apostles. But if the Gospel counts are true, then it makes sense for Peter to make this comment, you yourselves know. He needs to say nothing more about it. That's just a little dose of encouragement for us this, this morning. If the Gospel accounts are simply made up, then it's nearly impossible to make sense of how so many people came to believe them. So Peter speaks to Jesus' works first, and then he speaks to Jesus' crucifixion. And there's two things he says about Jesus' crucifixion. First, he notes that it wasn't a blip in God's plan. From the outside, it might appear to the Jews that the death of the Messiah could only be a mistake, a horrifying interruption to God's plan. But the truth of the matter, Peter says, that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In fact, the cross, Scripture teaches, was the central reason for Jesus' coming. And that's because it was the only way for us to be saved. And I want us to think about this, to think about the kind of Christ, the kind of Savior that Jesus is. If, if As Scripture teaches, if man's chief problem is, is that God is holy and righteous, and we are not, Jesus says in Matthew, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. And He says that all of these things defile us. If our separates if our if our sin excuse me separates us from a pure and holy god who judges all evil then the only solution is that somehow our record of evil would be forgiven and erased none of us can undo the wrongs we've committed and we can't make up for them either we can't right our wrongs free forgiveness is our only hope before god and this Praise God was his very purpose in sending his son. As Peter writes in his first letter, that he might bear our sins in his body on the tree. God will judge every last sin. And the only question for each one of us is whether we will trust in Jesus to bear our judgment or whether we will bear it ourselves. The cross was no mistake but it was part of God's loving plan to save us from sin and death and from His wrath. Jesus' crucifixion was purposed by God. That's the first thing Peter says about it. But then secondly, Peter says that the crucifixion is our doing. This Jesus, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And yes, Peter here is addressing the men of Israel, the house of Israel. But Scripture is clear both here and elsewhere that both Jew and Gentile alike are responsible for the death of Jesus. The men of Israel killed Jesus, Peter says, by the hands of lawless men. That is, by the hands of people who did not have the Mosaic law. Gentiles. And just two chapters later here in Acts, the disciples quote Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? 
In order for us to cry out to God for mercy, we must first understand something of the depth of our own sin and guilt. We share in the guilt of Adam's sin, Scripture teaches. And I think it can also be said that we share in the guilt of crucifying Jesus. Had we been there, you and I would have joined in that chorus of voices that sang out, crucify Him. And so here in Acts 2, we learn our guilt. That's where Peter starts. But we also see, at the same time, the incredible depths of God's love and mercy. Excuse me, I'm like, totally lost my spot. I've like gotten way ahead of my manuscript or gotten on the wrong page. I'm sorry, folks. Sorry, we see the depths of God's incredible love and mercy. Peter tells these men that they crucified and killed Jesus. And yet, what is God's response here? His response is to send Peter to the very people who killed his son. Not to condemn them, but to show them their sin and to lead them to repentance and salvation. God's mercy reaches to the very greatest of sinners. If anyone here is wondering whether God will forgive you, whether He's willing to cleanse you of your sin, whatever it is, God's Word assures us that He is willing. All we have to do is cry out to Him. And He will forgive us and embrace us. So according to God's plan, Jesus was crucified that we might be saved. Of course, the cross is not the end of the story. Peter proceeds to what we might say is the main event, to his central claim, which is that Jesus was raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of God. And Peter's argument is that the Scriptures foresaw that this would be the case. In verse 24, he says, it was not possible for him, that is Jesus, to be held by it, meaning death, for David says concerning him. Then Peter quotes Psalm 16, the Psalm of David penned a thousand years prior. And though it appears that David is speaking with reference to himself in this psalm, Peter sees that certain statements could not possibly be about David. And look especially at verse 27. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. Now in the New Testament, the word Hades, and in the Hebrew, it's the word Sheol. These terms don't refer to hell, even though Hades is commonly used that way today. Rather, these are simply generic terms for the grave where people go when they die. So David's point isn't that He's not going to face eternal judgment in hell. But David is saying that he won't remain dead at all. God will not let his Holy One see corruption, David says. The alternative that David looks forward to is dwelling in God's very presence. In verse 28, You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And the rest of Peter's argument is quite straightforward. David died, and we can go and dig up his bones today if we wanted to. David saw corruption. 
In Psalm 16, then, he's clearly speaking prophetically. He's looking forward to the fulfillment of the covenant and the promises that God made to him in 2 Samuel 7. Listen to God's promise to David. God says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, God told David that he would rest in the grave. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. One of David's son, sons would occupy an eternal throne meaning they wouldn't be abandoned to the grave. They wouldn't see corruption or bodily decay as David prophesies. And of course, it's witnessing Jesus' resurrection that leads the apostles to understand Scripture afresh in this way. In verse 32, Peter says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And so it's the Old Testament prophecies together with the New Testament witness of the apostles that form the historical foundation of the Christian faith. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that the gospel is that Christ died and and rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. And then he goes on to speak of how Christ appeared to the apostles after His resurrection. If we want to help people consider the claims of Christ, this is the best place to do it. This is where we want to take them. And I've said it before, but so often, all that begins with is an invitation. Often we never get there because we never think to simply ask someone whether they would be willing to open God's Word with us. Jesus was attested by God. He was crucified according to God's plan. God raised him from the dead. And then starting in verse 33, Peter adds the claim that Christ is now exalted at the right hand of God. And the Greek word for exalt here, its literal meaning is simply to lift up. It was upon his ascension into heaven that Jesus was exalted at the right hand of God. And it's upon his exaltation, Peter says, that Jesus received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. And by this, of course, Peter doesn't mean that Jesus didn't have the Holy Spirit before. Rather, what he means is that just as Jesus at his baptism had been specially endowed with power by the Holy Spirit for his earthly ministry, right? the Spirit descended on Jesus in the form of a dove, we read in the Gospels. So now, similarly, Jesus receives from the Father the authority to pour out the Spirit in the same way upon His people. And it's for the same purpose. It's that we might be empowered for the ministry that Christ has given to us, which is the ministry of speaking prophetically about the Lord Jesus. Christ can send the Spirit because He has been granted the power and authority of God the Father. And He shares His throne. He sits at the right hand of God. And again, Peter argues that David had foreseen this as well. And this time he quotes Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Here David is recording a vision he had of God speaking to someone who not only does David call him Lord, 
But this figure is told to sit at the very right hand of God. And this is a very striking thing to come from the pen of David. For the Israelite, there was only one Lord. Throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh is not just some local deity, one of many gods. He is the Lord of heaven and earth who rules over all. He's present everywhere and his power has no limits. And so for David to then speak of one who's invited to sit at the very right hand of God, sharing his power and glory, it begs the question, who could this possibly be? What mere man could possibly be worthy to sit at God's right hand? And of course, this is Peter's point as he quotes David. David spoke of one who would overcome death itself and be exalted to God's very throne. And after witnessing the resurrection and ascension, Peter delivers this powerful conclusion. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Having completed the work that God sent for him to accomplish, God the Father exalted Jesus, God the Son, to take up his heavenly throne once more, yet to do so now as the Christ, the Savior of the world. This is Peter's conclusion to our first question. This is what he has to say. Who is Jesus? He is both Lord and Christ. We'll turn now more briefly to our second question, which is, in many ways, it's equally important, which is this. How should we respond to Jesus? How should we respond to Jesus? We read in verse 37 that this question is the question that the Jews have after listening to Peter preach. They're cut to the heart, the text says. They've realized their guilt, and you can imagine it's absolutely devastating. Peter's last words were essentially that Jesus' blood was on their hands. This Jesus whom you crucified. And so their consciences are burdened to the point of despair. And they ask the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Somewhere along the way, as the seed of faith sprouts in our hearts, there develops in us a deep sense that we are in dire need of God's forgiveness and grace. And our hearts long to know at that point how we can be made right with God. Scripture is wonderfully clear and direct on this point. In verse 38, Peter says to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized, Peter says. Repentance, I'm sure many of you have heard it explained this way. Repentance means simply to turn. It's to turn from our selfish pursuits to living for God. Repentance ultimately has God as its reference point. It's as we begin to see His beauty and His goodness and grace that our hearts begin to long to walk with Him and to be more like Him and to experience more of His beauty, and goodness, and to live lives that are pleasing to Him. To repent is to ask, what do I need to stop doing in my life 
that is displeasing to God? And what do I need to start doing in order to live a life which pleases Him? Repentance begins in the heart and it leads to a change in how we live. We respond to Jesus by repenting. And secondly, we respond to Jesus by being baptized. Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Baptism is a picture. And it's a picture of God joining us to Jesus. Peter says here, be baptized in the name of Jesus. Paul says in Romans 6 that in baptism we are united to Jesus in His death and resurrection. This is how he puts it. Paul writes, We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And when we're joined to Christ in that way, His blood cleanses us. In baptism, the water is symbolic of that cleansing, of our sins being washed away. Again, Peter says, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And be clear, we can't fully explore this now. Scripture teaches that we are saved through faith in Jesus. Through trusting in Him and what He's done for us. But Peter's point here then is to demonstrate that true faith responds to Jesus in these concrete ways, in repentance and baptism. And when we do, when we do repent, when we are baptized, along the way we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God Himself comes to dwell within us by His Spirit, and the Spirit gives us newness of life through Jesus Christ. That resurrection life that Jesus has is now ours as the Spirit fills us. And Peter ends by saying that the promise This promise of the Spirit, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. The Jews and their children, this promise is for them. But it's also for the Gentiles who are far off. Every one of us whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And our text ends with Peter continuing to preach, pleading with people to repent. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Luke records that that day roughly 3,000 souls believed and were baptized and were added to God's people. History confirms the truthfulness of this story. Christianity exploded in the first century, not just in Jerusalem, but throughout the Roman Empire. And I think the most compelling explanation for that explosion is this account. It's what we read here in Acts 2. Jesus was raised as the apostles testify. And He is Lord in Christ and He's working from His heavenly throne. And still today, He's bestowing the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we see that around the globe, millions of people are coming to confess the name of Christ. Especially in Asia, in South America, and especially in Africa. The Christian faith is growing like wildfire. And in most places in the world, it's not because it's advantageous to be a Christian. 
It's just the opposite. It doesn't help you. But most places, it hurts to confess the name of Christ. It's not helpful just as in the Roman Empire of the first century. Confessing Christ led to being ostracized and in some cases persecuted. But still, Christianity is alive and well, and that's because Jesus is alive and well. He is Lord and Christ. If you've not trusted in that, that is the encouragement of God's Word to you today. See that He is the one that Scripture speaks of. That He wasn't just a man who upset the Romans and had his life taken early, but He is a man who rose as the disciples said He rose. And now He is alive and well in heaven. And He grants His Spirit for those of us who believe. For those of us who have trusted in Christ, we have this assurance that Christ is building His church And the same Spirit who worked in the first century will continue to work in us as we are witnesses to the Son, to Jesus. So let's be encouraged this morning. God is alive. His Son is alive. And His Spirit is at work. Let's thank Him for that.